0: As we've been <clears throat> going through the Psalms of Ascents, uh, just a reminder that these are those pilgrim songs, Psalms, um, written um, written at various times throughout Israel's history, but compiled together in uh, one section of the Psalter, or the Book of Psalms, um, and compiled in such a way that they would um, be... Uh, remembered, um, read on the way up to Jerusalem on the way to the feast recited, sung Um, we don't know exactly um, the music but some of these some of these songs you can um, especially in Hebrew you can um, see a a bit of the um, poetry, the rhythm Um, you see uh, how it could easily be put to to music, others uh, not so much. But whatever the case may be, these were meant to be uh, recited and sung, to be memorized almost, uh, to be memorable, um, so that the pilgrims could give give voice to their struggles, to their trials, and um, in these songs of ascent, as which, as with uh, you know, most of the psalms. We see a range of emotions. Um, you see some high highs and some low lows throughout these these songs of ascents, and and throughout many of the songs. And in fact, uh, Spurgeon, who was Charles Spurgeon, who was known for his bouts of depression, as you know, many many preachers, many many uh, strong believers throughout church history have been. Um, known for struggles with depression and and he said that he would often go to the Psalms because he said that he was never so low that he did not find David to be lower and he was never so high that he did not find David to be higher and we can um, identify with that in a a little in in a sense um, as we read the Psalms it's it's I think part of the reason why the Holy Spirit um, wrote these, so we could go there in in our times of struggle, in our times of grief, in our times of depression, times of doubt. Alan Ross, in his commentary on the Psalms, he writes this uh, about Psalm 130. He says that Psalm 130 is one of the six penitential psalms. Uh, There's different ways in which... um, uh, theologians, uh, pastors, commentators have, have categorized some of these psalms. Um, and, and yes, those categories are, you know, they're, they're extra biblical, but um, they, they correctly identify um, the themes of these psalms. Some are psalms of a lament. Some are psalms of, um, as Alan Ross writes, uh, penitence or, or penitential psalms. Uh, we see repentance Um, psalms of thanksgiving royal psalms and another commentator he you know as alan rossi says there's six but another commentator lists seven Um, psalm six psalm 32 psalm 38 51 102 uh, and 143 And, and we can see if you know if we looked at those psalms we see a lot of similarities in the repentance the um Kind of the mourning, the, the brokenness. And Ross goes on to say, in view of its emphasis on the forgiveness of sin, um, uh, the doctrine, he, he says, the doctrine is so clearly stated in this passage that Martin Luther described it as a Pauline psalm or a Pauline psalm, um, saying that it, it, in a sense, gives voice to Paul's theology in his epistles he goes on, he says, the simplicity of the theological point and the beauty of the composition make this passage all the more memorable. We can see that. We see this brokenness of sin, this, um, in a sense, uh, the depravity of man, um, the grace of God, uh, forgiveness with God, um, the hope in God and in God alone, his steadfast love. Um, many of the attributes and characteristics of God come forth in this psalm, in the emotional pleas of the, the psalmist. And this song of a sense, it, it, it divides up real, real nicely um, in, in four parts, and each of one of those parts in, in, uh, in uh, two verses. And we, we can see that here in this psalm, this this uh, song of ascents we see four responses really responses to the character of God Um, that's what we see in the psalmist uh, his um, expressions that they're really responses to the character of God and more importantly God himself and in light of his condition or where he's at in that point in his life and and so we see these four responses first he cries to the Lord Second, he fears the Lord. Third, he waits for the Lord. And fourth, he hopes in the Lord. So first, he he cries to the Lord in verses uh, 1 and 2. He cries to the Lord, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He cries to the Lord. And, and it, as we you know read this, it, it almost has this... Uh, this picture, this illustration, uh, a scene, he says, Out of the depths, he cries to, I cry to you, O Lord. And, and there's this um, sense of a, a picture of great distance. Out of the depths, is, you know, he's as low as he can possibly be, and he's, he's crying as high as he can possibly cry to God himself, to, in a sense, the, the greatest heights, the throne of God. And, and um, You know, as far as he can be. He cries to the Lord from far away. From far away. And, you know, as um, many commentators say, this is not looking at um, so much a natural or circumstantial depth as if it's a a trial. Um, But it's more of a a spiritual sense. But I kind of beg to differ because... Usually, um, when you're at a spiritual low, in, 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 uh, in a sense, uh, living in sin or broken over your sin, usually uh, your natural circumstances, your natural surroundings correlate you know, to some degree or another. You, you think of people who are living in sin spiritually, and it shows, it, shows, it, it evidences itself um, in their lifestyle, in their um, relationships, and sometimes even um, where they are physically. I think of, you know, living on the street, living in a gutter, so to speak. Um, so I, I think there's a little bit of both. That there's the, the natural, physical, circumstantial depths, but also the spiritual depths. And right away, you know, when we read this, I mean, um, in my mind, and in most people's mind, we, we think of Jonah. Think of Jonah. we we recently gone through the book of Jonah, and, you know, the psalmist here says, Out of the depths I cry to you, and, and that's almost, in the sense, this the same cry of Jonah in Jonah chapter 2, and, and his his cry of repentance, when I mean, I mean, God, you know, casts him, um, you know, appoints the fish fish to swallow him. And and almost, um, you know, the, the height of God's discipline uh, breaks Jonah. Jonah chapter 2 says, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. He's saying, that out of the belly of Sheol, kind of that... that um, that term for um, death for uh, could also be used for hell. Uh, almost as saying, uh, as low as I could possibly get, I'm almost dying, I'm almost in hell. I, I'm crying to you, and you heard my voice. And then he goes on to say, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Um, physically This is, this is a picture the psalmist is getting at in Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you. He doesn't elaborate on it like, like Jonah does, but um, even as we look at, at Jonah's repentance, we can, in a sense, um, probably think back to times in our lives of repentance and, and maybe even at, at the point of our conversion. Some of us have that um, Damascus Road um, experience and that conversion testimony of, um, just living in gross sin and gross immorality. And, and if we don't have that personal testimony, we've heard testimonies like that. That our, our spiritual depths and our natural physical depths can sometimes correlate. Sometimes we see that. That um, because of the, the the depths of sin that we have fallen into, um, our whole world, in a sense, is, is falling apart. And, and sometimes that's due to God's discipline as we we go off in our sin and he uh, disciplines us so that we get to the point of as um, many have said um, hitting rock bottom we hit rock bottom and, and, and it's from that rock bottom that we cry out to the lord out of the depths and we see the psalmist he does that he's crying to the lord from far away uh, and from far away as far as he could possibly be he, he's, he cries to the highest point to the Lord God to the throne room of God cries from far away and he cries from a need for mercy a need for mercy Mer- you know, he says in verse 2 O Lord hear my voice let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy he's at the end of himself he knows that He can't do anything to rectify his situation. He cannot pull himself up by his own bootstraps. He he is at the Lord's mercy and and not just um, at the Lord's mercy, but knowing that it's only the Lord's mercy that will deliver him. It's, It's not anybody else. No one else can come along and deliver him. He can't deliver himself. There's only one place, one person that can help him and that's God, the, the creator of the universe. See, this, this need for mercy is evidenced by his desperate cry to be heard. Hear my voice. It's, uh, you know In my translation, it has an exclamation point. It's probably in the same as all your translations. There's exclamation point here as if he, he's screaming, as if there's desperation in his voice. You don't hear me, I'm, I'm done. Let your ears be attentive. So, so not, just, not just hear me, Lord, Lord, but listen, listen to me, please. And we see see this, this need for mercy also characterized by his, his constant pleading. His constant pleading. And there's there's a, a good illustration of this this breaking point, this, this cry for mercy in the New Testament. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. We you see, you see what kind of um, the psalmist is getting at here in, in Luke chapter 18 in one of uh, Jesus' parables um, concerning uh, repentance and what true repentance looks like. Jesus' parable in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, the, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus tells this parable as he's, he's telling all these parables of the kingdom in, in this um, section, explaining to the people um, the nature of the kingdom, the nature of salvation. He, he shares this parable. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and treated others with contempt. He goes on to say, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is kind of a similar picture of, of, of the psalmist's cry for mercy. He could be crying, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And it's interesting that even, you know, Jesus, he shares this parable, and it's right after another parable, which also gives us a picture of this cry for mercy. Because right before he shares this parable, he shares another parable, the persistent widow who pleads with uh, the the um, the unrighteous judge for for justice, and, and we we see um, you know both of these parables illustrate what is happening in the psalmist right here that that he says he says let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy a uh, plural constant pleading broken. Uh, pleading. There's brokenness in the psalmist in in his pleas for mercy. Spurgeon said this, he says, pardon of sin must ever be an act of pure mercy. And therefore, to that attribute, the awakened sinner flies. we'll, We'll not seek God until we realize that only God can help us. Only God can rectify our situation. Only God can redeem us, can restore us, can make us right. We can't do anything on our own. So we see that the psalmist, he cries to the Lord because God is merciful. Because God is merciful. And we see the, second, the, the psalmist's second response. He fears the Lord. He fears the Lord. Verses 3 and 4 If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. You may be feared. You may be feared. And so many times I have shared that that verse, uh, those two verses to to people and just um, praying for them, um, proclaiming the gospel to them. That if God should mark iniquities in, in any of us, no one could stand. And we, we see the the psalmist as, as he um, speaks these words to God, um, we see his fear. Yeah, he, he ends the verse four that with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The result but he there's fear all throughout these verses. He, he shows his fear of God and his fear of God in light of his sin. In light of his sin and God's holiness, he understands that no one could stand before God. God is so holy that if he should mark iniquities, there's not one single person that could stand. John Calvin, in his commentary, he writes this. He says, Whenever God then exhibits the tokens of His wrath, let even the man who seems to others to be the holiest of all His fellows descend to make this confession, that should God determine to deal with us according to the strict demands of His law and to summon us before His tribunal, not one of the whole human race would be able to stand. We grant that it is one man only who here prays, But he at once pronounces sentence upon the whole human race. All the children of Adam, he substantially says, from the first to the last are lost and condemned. Should God require them to render up an account of their life? It is therefore necessary that even the holiest of men should pass under this condemnation, that they may betake themselves to the mercy of God as their only refuge. Saying. He he recognizes God's holiness, his his righteous standard. That there's not one person ever that could meet that standard. Even externally. He he knows his own heart. He knows he's he's brutally honest with the Lord. He understands where he stands. And so he cries for mercy. He cries for forgiveness. This is right in line with what Paul says in Romans chapter three. We we use this this text in our evangelism, and we should because sinners need to know that they are sinners. As, as um, you know, one one pastor has famously said that you know we we try to um, you know go out and evangelize and, and get the lost to be saved, but um, Oftentimes, we need to get the lost to understand that they're lost before they can even get to the point where they feel they need to be saved. Paul does this in the beginning of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And right away, you know, when you share that with somebody, you know, uh, uh, an unbeliever or or a professing believer, they they can, uh, you know, get defensive and, and start to you know, uh, make a list or say, no, no, well, I did this or this, that or did this, and, and, and you can just pointedly tell them, well, listen, the Bible says that none is righteous, no, not one. so either you're a liar or the Bible's lying, but both of these cannot be true. Either the Bible's true or you're true, but they both cannot be true. There is no fear of God before their eyes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul writes this, and, and, and even as you, know, you share this with some people, and, and maybe, maybe they're a little bit witty, maybe they understand a bit of the Bible and say, well, that's just Paul. But Paul's quoting through several passages of the Old Testament. This is all throughout the Bible. The sinfulness of man, the the total depravity of mankind, that apart from the Spirit of God, apart from the work of God, we cannot stand before God. This is the same thing Jesus said in Mark chapter 10. As someone who thought he was righteous came up to Jesus, and um, we we read this in Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. It says this, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he goes on and, and he uses the law to confront his sinfulness. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And and even the 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 man said, and he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth, not real realizing uh, you know the extent of these commands. And it's interesting because Jesus, Mark uses these these words, Jesus looking at him, loved him. He loved him. Because he goes a step further to point out his Sinfulness, his idolatry, and he says to him, "You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me." Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus, you know, struck at the heart of of his true idol, the true idol of his heart—his possessions, his riches, his worldliness—which he he tried to avoid. All the other commandments. Because he's, in a sense, you know, saying, well, you know, obviously I'm good. Even Jesus, Jesus said, said, no one is good except God alone. I use this verse in my evangelism before as well because, you know, a lot of people like to pit one biblical author against another and say, well, that's just Paul or that's just, you know, Paul's harsh. Usually, people, you know, if they argue against Paul, you take them to Jesus because usually people don't want to argue against Jesus. So, you know, <laughs> Jesus said, No one is good but God alone. This is why the psalmist fears God. This is why he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He recognizes his sinfulness. He's come to the point, to the end of himself. He understands uh, his need for mercy, his need for forgiveness, and so he fears the Lord. He fears the Lord's judgment. He fears the Lord because, in light of his sin and God's holiness, he understands God's righteous standard that no one could meet it. No one could stand before the God, before the Lord, before God. But he also fears the Lord in light of God's mercy and grace. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You know, the result of forgiveness, the result of God's grace, the result of salvation is that we fear the Lord and we walk in in the Lord's commandments. We seek to honor the Lord. You know, we, we try to be the God fearing man or woman which the the Bible speaks highly of, those who fear the Lord. So he fears the Lord in light of God's mercy and grace in addition to God's holiness and His justice. Because it's only through God's mercy and grace that we would uh, sincerely fear the Lord. We must be converted to truly fear the Lord. We see this right here. This is a a, a turn in in his speech. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We see the gospel right here in these two verses. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand but? And as many preachers have said before, thank God for the buts in the Bible. Thank God for the buts in the Bible. And the biggest but in the Bible is quite arguably in Ephesians 2. So turn there, Ephesians 2, this is, this is the biggest but in the Bible. I say that so you'll remember it. Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2, "And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What do dead men do? Nothing. and here it is, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I know one of my professors, I went over to his house to have a meal with some other classmates. And, um, uh, you know, he was my counseling professor and he had just... Those two words on his shelf and the little sign, but God. And he'd always say in your counseling, and you're counseling somebody in sin, you you have to get to that point where they understand but God, and you have to preach but God, and you have to tell them but God, no matter how um, messed up you are, whether unconverted or converted, um, but God. You have to have that hope that God can rectify your situation. And he can because he is merciful. He's merciful, and and the psalmist understands this. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And and what the psalmist hits on in Ephesians chapter two, um, Paul kind of brings out a little bit more, because towards the end he's talking about how we are saved by God's grace, but God and God alone can save us. Can, redeem us can restore us and he says by grace you have been saved in verse five and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in christ jesus and these two verses which we often use in our evangelism which are great we should memorize them we should share them we should meditate upon them. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But here's the point I want to get at, because Paul goes on in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Salvation doesn't just stop at our conversion, that we enter the kingdom and, oh, well, everything's great now. We're saved and just smooth sailing from here on out. No, we're have we not saved to just sit there and just wait for heaven. We're saved to do works. And this is kind of what the psalmist is alluding to. But with you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared, that you may. He could also say that you may be worshipped, that you may be honored, that you may be obeyed. There is forgiveness with you, that that people would be changed, converted, so that they would truly become God-fearers and follow you. Psalmist, he, he, he fears the Lord because God is holy. You see that he cries to the Lord because God is merciful. He fears the Lord because God is holy. And third, his third response, he waits for the Lord. He waits for the Lord. Verses 5 and 6, and, and, and this is almost as we see, um, we can see this pattern of um, either salvation or, or, say, a backslidden saint that is restored. Yeah, there is a recognition of sin and brokenness, a cry for mercy um, and for forgiveness, God's forgiveness, a recognition of sin, and, and then a restoration. Verse 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. He waits for the Lord. And he waits for the Lord in in two ways. First, with trust in His word. With trust in His word. And and yes, many times... um, Throughout the, the, the time of the Old Testament, all that time of history, there is there's many saints that they, they did not have much access to the Word of God. There there was in, in the synagogues and in the temples, there were scrolls that could be read, but um, there was this this oral law, this oral tradition. That's why they, they tried to memorize um, scripture and put um, scripture to psalm to uh, song, as in the Song of Ascents. They would they would meditate upon the word when when they would teach it to one another when the the Levites and, and and the the prophets would teach it and so he he hopes in in those those few promises which he has memorized before God's promise of His covenant faithfulness to Israel first and foremost certainly there's there's um, you know, just as we see in the New Testament, that there's key passages that we should memorize. And for the Old Testament Jew, there was key passages such as the Shema and Deuteronomy 6 and, and other, um, the, the character of God in Exodus 34 and, and other um, particular psalms and, and sayings throughout the Old Testament that they would memorize uh, uh, God's covenant promises to Abraham. And this is what he is, he is trusting in. These words, these promises. He, he trusts in his, God's promise of covenant faithfulness, of his promise of forgiveness, of forgiveness to all who repent and seek him. And seek him. You know, one, one of the key um, attributes of, of God that is, is throughout the whole Old Testament that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is what he's hoping in. He, he's, he waits for the Lord with trust in His Word, but he also waits for the Lord with anticipation of His restoration that He will be restored. Verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. He's, he's, he's looking forward to his complete restoration. The restoration of his relationship with God and and as Psalm 130 is one of these penitential psalms. We, we see this, the, the same attitude in Psalm 51 in which David writes in Psalm 51 of, of his repentance. Psalm 51 in verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit then i will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you this is what the psalmist is is saying he's waiting for the lord he's 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 hoping in his word he waits for him to come to restore him you know he 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 cries for forgiveness and there is a sense that he's he's been forgiven but he waits for full restoration restoration of his relationship with God and, and restoration of his service to God. As, as uh, David says in, in Psalm 51, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. When, when we're restored to a right relationship with God, one of the, the key evidences of that restoration is our desire for service, our re- desire to serve God, to honor God, and, and even to proclaim God, to proclaim the gospel. The, you know, new converts are some of the most zealous evangelists because they, they, they've seen what a, a God has done in their life in, their, in, in transforming them and in, in redeeming them and in, in converting them. That's what the, the psalmist waits for. And there is this illustration of waiting, of waiting confidently, of the watchman, this picture of the watchman, the, uh, the the military sentry, the the guard, the, the the guy on guard duty on the ramparts of the of the um, city. Yeah, is, you know, um, one of the most basic military duties is to stand watch, stand night watch, and especially in, in, in that day and age, you know. Um, recently in um, the United States military uh, throughout um, the 80s and 90s um, there was a saying that we used to say that we own the night it was because of our technology Um, but before that time because of night vision, thermal imaging things like that we we had no we didn't worry about the night we owned the night but up until that point um, the night's kind of a scary time it's a scary time to be on guard duty because that's the time when, when people are most likely to attack. And also, there was, there's something we, we did. We don't do it much anymore <laughs> in the U.S. military, but there was this thing during training exercises they called stand-to. You'd wake up early in the morning around you know, 05, 06, and everybody's up, stand-to. And they're 100% on watch and I I never knew why just just do it until one, one time one, another soldier he said um, yeah we do stand to because that's when the French and Indian attack <laughs> that's how long that and probably even before that French and Indian war because that's you know early dawn early dawn is probably one of the best times to attack somebody because that's when they're most sleepy they're most tired It's coldest, and if you you work it out right, you come from the east so that when the sun is rising, it masks you. It blinds the defenders, so that's why there's 100% security. But for a watchman who's standing night watch, he's hoping for the morning. He's hoping for the morning because with the morning, not only does his relief come, he gets off duty, but there's the relief of the sun, of light. All the shadows will go away. All the shadows in which the enemy can hide, can lurk. All the weak points in which the enemy would approach, they're, they're lighted up. And So there's a, there's a sense of, of calm, a sense of ease, a, a sense of safety. When the, the, the full brightness of the sun comes. And we can see that just, you know, just naturally in our emotions. You know, when the sun rises, it's a brand new day. It's almost a, a sense of hope. You know, just, just from the sun rising, from there being light, from a, a, a sunrise. This is what the the, the psalmist is, is looking forward to. This is what he's waiting in, what he's hoping in. This, this sense of relief as the sun comes up. and, and It's almost as if if the, the sun is representative of God. Of pure light. Proverbs 4.18 says this. Uh, the, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. Which shines brighter and brighter until full day. I've used that, that, that verse um, many times to talk about our our walk, our, our, our um, Christian walk of, of sanctification, of growing in holiness, that the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It's almost as if the, the, the dawn is, is, um, is illustrating salvation, and then he says it, it shines brighter and brighter until full day, until our full glorification, that though we stumble, we, we continue to grow in holiness, and, and the, the sun rises, and it, it, it just gets brighter and brighter. This is what the psalmist is waiting for. This is what he's hoping in. He waits for the Lord. Because in a sense, God is trustworthy. He fulfills His, his promises to redeem, to restore, to, um, to wash away all our sins. Says, you know, Psalm 103 says, you know, As far as the east is from the west, He will remove all our transgressions from us. And there's a reason why he uses that, that analogy, The that east is from the west, because you can't measure the east from the west. You know, if you said the north to the south, you can measure that, but you, there's no point where east is and west is. It's just, it's almost infinite. That's how far he removes our transgressions from us. And so we see... Um, now the psalmist, he cries to the Lord because the God is merciful. He fears the Lord because God is holy. He waits for the Lord because God is trustworthy. And fourth, he hopes in the Lord. He hopes in the Lord. Verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So this almost comes full circle. That, you know we see this um, you know almost like the cycle of salvation and someone sees uh, the depths of their sin their brokenness their, their their need for restoration their need for mercy they cry out to the Lord understanding his holiness his justice their need for forgiveness they they they, they wait for the Lord for full restoration for um, for usefulness in a sense they, they, they understand um His redemption, his restoration, and then they cry out to others. Hope in the Lord. It's almost a psalmist's testimony. Hope in the Lord. There's two reasons why he calls um, uh, Israelites, he calls others to hope in the Lord. And first, because of his character. Because of his character. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. Steadfast love. Like, um, uh, in other words, eternal love, never failing love, um, undiminishing love, pure love. With the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is, is plentiful redemption. Enough to go around. Enough for everybody. For anyone who would repent and believe upon him. Psalm 103, once again, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children. So the Lord shows compassion. To those who fear him. Psalm 103 verses 8 to 13. It's almost a parallel passage. To Psalm 130. It's almost exactly what the psalmist says here. He hopes in the Lord because of his character. And also. Because of his promises. Because of. God's promises. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. From all his iniquities. Yes, all throughout the Old Testament we see Israel's sin, we see their idolatry, we see their their treachery, in a sense their treason against God. We also see God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to his covenants to Abraham, to David, um, that he's he says time and time again that he will redeem Israel. And yes, many Israelites die. Many, Even in the, the, the time of Jesus that he condemns many of the Jews. But um, towards the end, um, you know, the Bible says that all Israel will be saved. Speaking of all the elect, all the ones that he has, he has um, uh, pointed out since before the foundation of the world, all of them will be saved. This is, this is, it kind of points forward to the hundred and forty four thousand in Revelation that twelve thousand from every tribe and and um, you don't have to take that number literally. It's just it may be literal, um, but it, it shows that he will save all Israel, all that he has um, has elected, has chosen. He will save them. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He hopes in the Lord because of his character and because of his promises. So we see that you know, the, the psalmist, he cries to the Lord because God is merciful. He fears the Lord because God is holy. He waits for the Lord because God is trustworthy. And he hopes in the Lord because God is faithful. He's faithful. He does exactly what he says he will do, and, and he, he shows that all throughout the Bible. He shows that in his people. This this, this psalm reminds me of, in a sense, of, of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. We see, as I said, the kind of, almost a cycle of salvation, and Jesus says this in <clears throat> kind of uh, Matthew chapter five in the beginning, and. What we see as the Beatitudes, and it's really characteristics of kingdom citizens, characteristics of those who are truly converted, characteristics of um, the true people of God. This is how, this is how you identify them. This is um, the characteristics of, of believers. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3 Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We we can, you know, ask ourselves. We can evaluate ourselves based on Jesus' statements right here. The poor in spirit. Understanding that they are completely bankrupt in, in, in spiritual things apart from God. And those who understand their, their spiritual bankruptcy, the their sense, as the psalmist says, out of the depths I cry to you, there, there's nothing I have to offer you. And when you understand that, and you can admit that, and you confess that, then yours is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Also in the spiritual sense, not, not talking about losing a loved one, but you mourn over your sin. Those who mourn over their sin show, they prove that God has done a work in them because, you know, if only true believers mourn over their sin and are broken over their sin, he says they shall be comforted. You will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, those who who seek to honor God, to follow him, to obey him, to submit to him. They shall inherit the earth. You will be in the millennial kingdom. You will be in the the new heavens and the new earth. You will um, reign with him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. As I said this morning, are are you a slave to righteousness as it says in Romans chapter 6? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness and understand that you are not righteous and that's why you hunger and thirst for it. You strive for holiness. Jesus says they shall be satisfied. We'll be satisfied. And lastly, you know, and they speak about, you know, uh, kingdom citizens and, and how you can identify who's a true believer and who's, who's not, according to you know, Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain. And the Apostle John, that's why he wrote his, his letter, 1 John, and he says in 1 John, 1 John 1 9 is why we have that preparatory prayer every um, you know, morning worship service. Because he says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. True believers, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They confess their sins. They trust in God's Uh, forgiveness they fear him we are in a sense as i titled this sermon the lord's dependent completely utterly we depend on him for everything and all spiritual things heavenly father help us to see help us to see how much we need you see our bankruptcy in spiritual things, apart from your spirit, apart from your indwelling us, apart from your restoration. But Also, help us, on the other hand, to see, to know, to rest in your promises, in your faithfulness, in your mercy, in your, your steadfast love. You have shown us your love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us greatest act of love. Remind us of your love for us in the cross, daily, constantly, and that we may live in light of that love and go proclaim it to others. We thank you for your grace and for your steadfast love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.